Uh, we are doing a series on parables, okay? Hence the giant board that says parables, right? Uh, these are stories that Jesus has told and is still telling through his word. Um, and we're going to jump in. Are we recording? Are we all good? You are awesome. Um, and we're going to Luke chapter 15. We're going through that Sunday school greatest hit, the golden record classic of the prodigal son, okay? This is probably Jesus' most famous parable, if not one of the most famous. Uh, everybody knows the prodigal son, which is just funny because he's not a real person, right? But we know what Jesus is teaching here. So let's jump in, and then we'll see kind of where we go from there. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Luke 15, 1 through 3, and it, it'll be up on the board as well. Um, Luke 15, 1 through 3. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the, Pharisees and, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying... So, hang on. Right away, we see that this is, a diff- that, that, that this is not just a usual story for Jesus, because, based on what we just read, his intended audience is different, right? The audience of his story is different. Look at verses 2 and 3. So you've got the sinners and the tax collectors in verse 1, but look at verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Jesus usually tells stories and ministers to, in the Bible, those who are broken, right? You know this. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are poor financially. Those who are social outcasts. Those who are known for their sins. But not here. He specifically starts telling his story in response to the Pharisees grumbling. Verse 3 is in response to verse 2. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling. Verse 3, so he begins telling this story to the, sinner, to, the, to the tax collectors. Let's see, let me back up. Not here. He specifically starts telling his story in response to the Pharisees grumbling. Not in response to the tax collectors and sinners who have gathered. So this story that you're about to hear, yes, it impacts the sinners and the tax collectors. But that's not exactly who he's talking to. That's not his direct intended audience. John Piper is my guy. He, he has a sermon on this story, and it's called A Tender Word for the Pharisees. These are the guys that Jesus would always go back and forth with, right? The Pharisees. You guys know this. He called them hypocrites, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. But here, Jesus, now picture this in your mind. Here, Jesus looks up the hill. He looks past the mob bosses and drug dealers and prostitutes, and he locks eyes with these grumbling legalists, these Pharisees, and he tells them three stories. The prodigal son is the third in a ring of three stories. We won't go over the first two, but we'll just fly over them real quick. In Luke 15, verses 3 through 7, tells a brief story of a man who had a hundred sheep, He left the 99, there you go, right? He left the 99 to find the one who was lost, and he rejoices with his friends when he finds it. Verses 8 through 10 tells a brief story of a woman who had 10 silver coins. She lost one and turned her whole house upside down, basically, to find the lost coin, and she rejoiced with her friends when she found it. 
Those are, that's the pattern that we've received going into the story of the prodigal son. Now, verses through 11, 30, through 11 through 32, I cannot speak this evening. Here we go. Jesus slows down. Okay, The first two stories are really brief, right? Like he busts through them, two to three verses max. But then this one is, is 20-something verses. So Jesus slows down and tells an extended story that fits the same pattern. And it's such a beautiful story with so many layers to it. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. That's great. You guys have been awesome. So let's pray. I'm just kidding. So right away, we get the same formula as in the first two stories. A man had a hundred sheep. A woman had ten silver coins. And now a man had two sons. Look at verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. The younger begins speaking. Now again, this is the same formula as the first two stories. In both the previous stories, Jesus gives us the total, right? A hundred sheep, ten coins. And then he immediately goes to the lost thing. A hundred sheep, but he lost one. Ten coins, but he lost one. Two sons, and the younger one said, so this will be the lost one according to the pattern from the first two stories. Now, let's get into it. Verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. This would have shocked, and I know I can see it in your faces, right? This would have shocked the listeners in Jesus' day. If we were in ancient Israel, if we were in a youth group or whatever, sitting in the desert, in ancient Israel, right? And I told you this story to make a point. Listen, and I told you this story to make a point. You would know that this story was made up just because I said that. You would know it was made up. You would know it was, it would, this would never happen. Because I said the younger son went to his father and said, give me my half of this, that you know it was made up. You would go home and tell your parents this story, and if you did that, this would be one of the parts that you would definitely remember. Because it is so outlandish, it is so unlikely, almost to be impossible. Here's why. This is in Jesus' day. The older son got the larger share of the inheritance. He was kind of the first blessing from God to the parents. Take for that what you will. The family line would continue his name first. He's the first to get married. He's the first to work, etc. So he would get the larger share of the inheritance, not the younger. Okay. Also, this was a shame, what we would call, now follow me, this is what we would call a shame and honor culture. Okay, a shame and honor culture. And here's an example. Uh, you remember maybe, I know you do, in the story of Esther. Um, in the story of Esther, she couldn't just walk in to talk to the king, right? That's the whole thing. The king has to what? The king has to summon her in first. The younger son had no business asking his father for his share of the inheritance. One, this may have even been illegal back then and for good reasons. But two, help me out. And you know this one, you can't get inheritance from somebody unless that person has what? Has died, right. The father was the head of the house. To do this, listen, to do this, to wish him dead 
would be the same as an attack on him, to wish him dead. Also, think about it. People's wealth at that time was not in cash. There was no such thing as cash. There really wasn't even a ton of coinage at that point. It was land and cattle and crops. So to give the son his part of the inheritance, you essentially had to rip your property in half. Since he was the younger, he gets half of the older. So the younger gets a third of the estate, basically. The older gets two-thirds, the younger gets a third of the estate. By asking for this, and we just said it, by asking for this, he's asking for his father to die. When I was in like sixth grade, I still remember this. I don't even remember what I was mad about, but I called my dad a jerk, right? And this just wasn't a word that we used in our house, period, but much less, you don't say that to skip, okay? Uh, and my dad, like, it like shook him for a week. And like he, like, like, we had to like sit down as a family and address why I couldn't say this and like how upset, it like, it like broke his heart. And I want you to think, I want you to stop for a second. Because in youth, it's like, oh, ha ha, at least he was funny, blah, blah. Like, I want you to stop for a second and think about what it would be like to say what this kid said to your parents and to mean it. He's essentially saying, give me a third of the savings account so I can take it and move away, and I don't ever want to see you again. The damage that would be done if you really, I don't mean like, oh, if I said, no. If you really did this, the damage that would be done, the heartbreak, the evil of it all. One commentary says it like this. The son is saying that he wants to break all ties with his family. He is planning to leave home and does not want any further contact with his father. So he wants his inheritance now. Now the people in this story are thinking, now remember, go back, the people listening to this story are thinking, oh my gosh, this kid is going to get it. Here it comes. You can't say that. Here it comes. And then the second half of verse 12 hits them like a ton of bricks. So he divided his wealth between them. In this shame and honor culture, this insulted and heartbroken father does it. Here in the story, when Jesus is telling it, you might have heard audible interruptions from the crowd. What? Hang on, he did, you're kidding, he's crazy. At this point, the father's mercy towards the son, right? We read it and we think, wow, that is not what the crowd is. They're thinking, what? The, the father's mercy at this point in the story would not be moving, would not have been beautiful. This kid deserved a whipping minimum, and he gets a third of the estate instead. People would have thought, when looking at you, they would have thought about the father doing this, and they would have said, what an old fool. To give away this so foolishly like that? Do you know what word in the English language, by the way, you can use this at parties, do you know what word in the English language we have for someone who gives away something like this so quickly, who gives things away in a manner that seems foolish? It's the word prodigal. That's where we get the word from. In this story, the prodigal son's sin is only matched by the father's prodigal love. But the people don't see this yet. So far, this is a crazy dad 
whose kid is just the worst. Okay? Look at verses 13 through 16. 13 through 16. Let's see what happens of his brilliant plan. And not many days after, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into the distant country. And there he wasted or squandered his estate with loose living. 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished or poor. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine or pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So here, all these terrible, he spends all his wealth, he has nowhere to stay, a famine comes, he has no job, he starts working with the pigs, and now the audience re- listening to Jesus is going to start thinking, ah, oh, there we go. Because remember, the father's love throws him off balance, and now, okay, here we go, here we go. Of course he spent himself broke. Of course the famine hit hard. This is the part of the story where Jesus is going to look up at us and say, that's what happens to bad people. They get what they deserve. That's what happens. And, and also, notice, what animal is the prodigal son working with now? What's he working with? Pigs, right? This was illegal if you are Jewish. He is so, now think about this. He is so desperate that his Jewish heritage has been given away. He gave away everything but his identity, and now he's given that away too. He's lost everything, including his identity. This sinful guy is at rock bottom. Now remember, this story, Jesus is locking eyes with who? He's locking eyes with the Pharisees, right? The people who look down their nose at the sinners and the tax collectors. Jesus is telling the story of the ultimate sinner getting what he deserves. And the Pharisees may have even started to relax a little, like, oh, that's more like it now. This this is starting to make sense. But note something here, real quick. Jesus is giving us a quick picture of what sin does to us. Look at me, middle school. Look at me, high school. He's giving us a picture of what sin does to us. I want you to remember this story The next time you see someone inappropriately dressed on Instagram and it's getting thousands of likes, or when you see someone on TV making fun of God and laughing, or when you are convinced in your own heart, if I give in to this sin, it will lead me to joy and fulfillment and peace. We are just like this kid. Don't miss that. If I just leave my father's guidance and his rules and his love and do my own thing, I'll be so much happier. Did Satan not do this exactly to Adam and Eve? Did God really say, if you follow God, you're not going to be happy? It's the same lie over and over and over and over. And in my generation and in yours, if you follow God, you're not going to be happy. It's not going to work. Do your own thing. Leave your father's protection and live the way you want to live. In a society that you and I live in, listen, where sin is rewarded, we must remember Jesus does not see sinful people as enlightened and peaceful and happy. He doesn't say, hey, he thought it was good for him, so be it. If that's true for him, 
then you go live your best life, right? He sees our sin as leading us into being an orphan. Sin leading us into death, as James says in chapter 1. Sin stripping us of everything we have, leaving us empty and longing for home. That's what sin does. And the audience is expecting that this is the part where Jesus will stop the story. He'll end it there and he'll say, this is what happens to bad people. But he doesn't end the story. Look at 17. Look at 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more money, have more than enough bread, but I am dying here from hunger? It says in 17, He came to his senses. Let's talk church for a minute. He came to his senses. This is called repentance. It's a church word that means he realizes what he's done and he realizes that he's not okay. He realizes what he's done and he realizes that he is not okay. Look at the verse again. He came to us and said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. He realizes what he's done and that he's not okay. Listen, so many people think they're okay. Addicted to bad stuff online. I'm okay. I can stop this whenever I want. Their relationships are a mess. I'm fine. My family's fine. Like your house is like on fire in the background. Oh, we're fine. We're doing fine. We're fine. Ryan was so funny tonight. We're doing fine. Their anxiety or their anger is through the roof. I'm good. I'm doing, I'm doing fine. Or, or they're so smug and legalistic that they can't even see that their hearts are hard as ice. I'm fine. I'm doing fine. Listen, the biggest problem in your life may not be the anger or the lust or the broken relationships. Listen, the biggest problem in your life may be that you can't admit that you're not okay when it comes to God. The biggest problem in your life may not be the lust, really. It may not be the anger or, or the fear or the, or the broken relationships. It might just be that you can't admit that you're not okay when it comes to God, that you haven't come to your senses yet. Repent in Greek means metanoia. Right, chill. Repent in Greek means metanoia. Listen, it means to change your mind. This is what repentance means. Metanoia, M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. I hate it when you're in school and the teacher just, when you can't get it, so I'm slowing down. It means to change your mind. Listen, not just to say you're sorry. Saying you're sorry is not repentance. Saying you're sorry is a sign that you are repentant, but anyone can say they're sorry. You know this. Anyone can get lost in their feels during the invitation and not really mean it. Repentance is an internal change of your mind and heart. It's not so much an action. That can be part of it. 
but it's an internal change. You see things differently because you are different. Look at verse 19. It's an example. Look at verse 19. He's, play, he's, he's thinking about what he wants to say to his dad, and he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. He's saying, because of my actions, I cannot be your son again. I cannot get back into the family. Eight verses ago, he was saying, there's no way I can stay in the family. And now he's saying, there's no way I can get back in this family. His heart has changed. I have done so much damage that the family relationship cannot be repaired. Please understand. And I love you enough to tell you, right? Please understand that this is what has happened between you and God. Between me and God. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And our sins run so deep, the relationship cannot be legally repaired. We owe God a much bigger debt than a third of the estate. Verses 18 through 19. Verses 18 through 19. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He realizes he has sinned against his father, and so he wants to go back and ask for forgiveness. That's what we have to do. This is what becoming a Christian is. Notice, he has no way to pay the father back. He's totally out of money. He has nothing. He has no card to play. He is totally exposed and totally bankrupt. He can own, there is nothing left to do at this point except ask his father for mercy. And the crowd listening to Jesus knows that this is the point they've come to, and they're thinking, still, it's too little too late. I'd be sorry too if I did that. This kid not only insulted his father and took his money, he spent it all. And he is about to get the whipping of his life. Now also, think about the shame too. And this happens in church all the time. The shame. You don't want to show your face because you know everybody's talking about what you did. You don't even want people to know you're in the room. That's what's about to happen to this kid and the crowd knows it. When we go before God, look at me middle school, when we go before God, we will be like this. We will have no card to play, no free pass. Just a lifetime of filthy rags and mess. But look at what happens in verse 20. He, imagine you going to God. He comes to his father, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. Here it is. But while he was still, but while you were still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran up to him and embraced him and kissed him. The audience is blown away at this point. Again, the rug of punishment has been pulled right out from under them compassion is what my version says this word in luke means to be moved with affection to yearn for something the father looks at his now picture this the father looks at his son who is filthy probably barely clothed at this point not even shoes on his feet 
And he is this way because, why is he so messed up and broken? Because of his foolishness. Because he left his father. The son is not a victim. Listen, he is a victim of himself. And the father never once says, I told you. He sprints up to him. He initiates contact. He still yearns for his son. The father ran. Now remember, you may have heard this before. This is a shame and honor culture. Fathers would have to lift up their robe to run. It was seen as undignified. It's this idea of fathers didn't run. Some of you may have dads like this. Fathers didn't run to things or people. They had things or people brought to them. You know what I'm saying? So dads didn't do it, but not this dad. He throws his dignity aside and runs into the dirt to get his son. What other story has a father who throws his dignity aside to get into the dirt to save those who are sinful? He hugs and kisses him. These are outward signs to show this inward affection that he has for his son. You can't see compassion. You know what I mean? But you can now see this affection. Then it gets even better. 21 and 22. 21 and 22. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his, on his hand and sandals on his feet. The son begins in 18 and 19. He comes up with that plan, right? His little spiel. He begins his speech, but he doesn't even get to finish. Did you catch that? He doesn't even get to finish his speech before the father just cuts him off with all his love. But look at where Jesus ends the speech. Now, this is a parable. This isn't a real thing. This didn't really happen. So Jesus is telling the story. When you tell a story, you can twist it to say anything you want. The speech could have ended anywhere, but it ended with, I am not worthy to be called your son. This is the reality. This is the elephant in the room. Because of what he did, he cannot be a son anymore. And look at what happens. 22. He puts the robe on. Take the, what does it say in 22? Quickly, bring out the best robe. Who do you think owns the best robe in the house? The dad. Take my best robe and put it on my son. The ring, this was probably a signet ring. If you guys are familiar with like a family heirloom or the family crest, some of you, right? This, this ring probably had the family crest on it so that the son can go into the city and show his family seal so now he still represents his family. He could do business in the name of his father. He has sandals put on him. Look at 22 again. Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and put sandals on his feet. The son wanted to be a servant at this point. But servants didn't have things put on them. Only the family had that done to them. These are outward proofs for everyone to see that the Father has made him a son again. Even though he is unworthy to be one. I thought about it like this. He gets to wear his dad's jacket again. Do you ever like when you're growing up, maybe for some of you, like you, like you walk, like you want to put on dad's blazer, right? Or dad's coat or whatever, right? And it's cute, but then it gets weird over time, right? But that, that's only, listen, he wants to put on his dad's jacket again. That's, that privilege only belongs to the son. You catch how intimate this is? 
He gets to bear the family crest with the ring. This unworthy, dirty, sinful kid gets to bear the noble, honorable family crest again. The dad has no problem saying, yeah, that's my son. He was unworthy, verse 21. He has done nothing to deserve being put back into the family. And yet as soon as the dad sees his repentant heart, he's immediately made family again. That is the gospel. We are unworthy of God's love. You and I are unworthy. We are legally separated from God because of what we have done. And once that fact sinks into your bones, whether it be tonight or at VBS or at camp or tomorrow night when you're just reading your Bible or, or walking to school, whatever, walking to school, I don't know. Once that fact sinks into your bones and you understand that you cannot get His love and you say, I have, listen to me, and you say, I have no shot if you're not merciful to me. I have no shot if you're not merciful to me. That's when the mercy comes flooding in. Matt Chandler says it like this, I love you, you're not awesome. That is so good. You can't earn it. And once that hits your bones and you realize I can't get in without you letting me in, that's when the mercy starts to flow. Last two verses for tonight, 23 and 24. And bring, the, this is the father talking, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they begin to celebrate. The fattened calf, this was extremely extravagant. This was enough to feed the entire village. What did the shepherd do when he found the sheep? What did the woman do when she found the coin? They got their friends together to celebrate. And if we rejoice so much, if we find so much happiness in finding animals or in finding money, how much more joy does God have when a sinner repents and comes looking for help? This story is meant to show us, listen, that Jesus is ready, man. He is eager to forgive a sinner who repents. He is waiting with His arms open to forgive you and bring you back into the fold. You may want to, if you're taking notes, you may want to write down or circle Psalm 86.5. Psalm 86.5 says this, For you, Lord, listen, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. You're, he's ready to forgive. This word ready, it means easily calmed. That's his bent. That's his nature. He, his anger burns against our sin. Don't mistake that. His anger burns against those who are against him. But if we will turn our hearts, if we will tell him that we're wrong, He'll be quick to put his robe on us. This is a, can I tell you something? This is a great story, but the gospel is even better. What Jesus is doing in that moment was even better than the story he's telling. In the story, the father waited for his kid to come back from the far country. Listen, but in the gospel, the father sends his only son to come into the far country and get us. To take the whipping that we deserved. I, I, you, you just can't help but think that some of the people in the crowd might be thinking like, why doesn't this dad just go out back and get a switch 
and do what needs to be done, right? Well, let me tell you, in reality, that's exactly what God did. Except He did it to Jesus in our place. Jesus took the shame that we deserve. He took the punishment that we deserve so that He could bring us home. And His family ring gets put on our finger. And the robe that was meant for Him gets put on us.